And friends, we are in the last message of our summer series called Answers. And we've had, well, this will be the 12th message, and I am excited to get to close out the series. And I'm not going to say this is the most important message of the series, but man, this is a really important message, okay? Here's why this is a really important message. We're dealing with some of the most weighty things that are central to the Bible, and it's salvation, eternal security, and sin. Salvation, eternal security, and sin. Now, for some of you, I know that the, the phrase uh, eternal security doesn't really have meaning. Uh, here's what it means, okay? It, in simple phrases, it has been said like this, once saved, always saved. It's been said like this, uh, once you're in the family of God, you can't be taken out of the family of God. Once you're born again, you can't be unborn again, okay? Or once Jesus has you in his grip, as we read earlier in John 10, no one can snatch you out of his hand. Why? Because the Father who has given all the people that Jesus have as his bride, the Father who has given them to Jesus is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of Jesus or the Father's hand, okay? So that's an overview of what it is to be eternally secure. Now, we have five questions tonight that deal in this realm of maybe what theologians would call soteriology. That just means the study of salvation, the study of salvation. And so, before we dig into the questions themselves, I think it would be appropriate for us to answer a question that I thought of, like thinking out of the people on the internet, someone who just stumbled upon us, someone who just walked into church today. Um, what is salvation and what must I do to be saved? Okay, that's a good starting place before we talk about uh, staying saved or God keeping you saved. Let's answer the question, what is it to be saved in the first place, right? And save from what? Okay, good. Let's do it. So, in the book of Acts, uh, I love the book of Acts. Someday we will go through this book as a church, um, but not yet. In Acts 16, the apostle Paul lands in Philippi, and he meets a demon-possessed girl, and he exercises the demon out of this demon-possessed girl, and Paul ends up in prison because of this, okay? The, his, the owners of the girl see that, oh, we are no longer able to make money, and they are upset, and so Paul and his companions get taken to prison. And what happens is, in the middle of the night, Paul and his companions are praying and singing the Psalms, and there's an earthquake in the jail. And the shackles fall off, and the doors of the prison swing open. It's miraculous. Okay? And the jailer comes out. Okay? And that's where we're breaking in. Ready? So, Acts 16, 22 to 34. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Now, why would he do that? The reason is because Roman soldiers, if they lost their uh, ones they were keeping guard over, it was their heads. And so, for this Roman soldier, he was like, I better just end it now rather than die in, in you know, dishonor for losing my prisoners. And so, he's just going to do the job himself so Rome doesn't have to do it to him. Okay? He's about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. 
And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Silas is one of Paul's companions. Then he brought them out, out of the, out of the prison, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, the answer here that Paul gives, I think, is one of the simplest and clearest answers to this question in the entire Bible. What is the answer? What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household. Unquote. There it is. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household, meaning anyone else who believes in your household. And what happened after this proclamation? Well, interestingly, I think that's a summary, because look at verse 32. And when they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and to all who were in his house, okay, that verse 32 there means it was expanded. It wasn't just the phrase, and the man was saved. The word of the Lord means the gospel and all its implications. And so, Paul unpacked what believe in the Lord Jesus means. Okay, look at it. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once. He and his family. Okay, baptism in the book of Acts is is like an initiation rite, and there's often no lag time between belief and baptism. It's an outward expression. It's an outward symbol of what has happened on the inside. And so, it was a part of your profession of faith was often baptism. And this is what happened here. The same night as belief is the same night that he was baptized. Not just him, but his whole household. Verse 34, then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now, I want to open up verse 32 just a little bit, okay? Just a little bit. And he spoke the word of the Lord to them, okay? That's unfolding the gospel, unpacking it, taking it apart a little bit. Now, Ephesians is, is a, a letter in the New Testament. It was a letter to the church at Ephesus. And in chapter 2, we find one of the m- more succinct versions of the gospel, okay? You know it by heart, some of you. Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, says this, it is by grace you have been saved. Grace, what is that? That's God's unearned, undeserved, demerited favor. Saved by what? Saved through faith. Okay? Faith is simply trust in. Okay? And though it's not said explicitly here until we get to verse 10, it's trust in Jesus, person, and work. Remember earlier, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. What does it mean to believe on the Lord Jesus? Well, he claimed many things about himself, primarily that he was God become man, sent to save all those who would turn from sin and trust in him. Okay? And so, to have faith in Jesus is to acknowledge you are a sinner, to confess that sin to God, to turn from that sin, and to turn to Jesus, asking for forgiveness, mercy, and grace, and God will forgive you based on what Jesus has done, not what we have, do, have done. And so, the faith there is trust. You could substitute trust for faith. For by grace you have been saved through trust. Trust in who? Trust in Jesus, person and work. Not a result of works, 
so that no one can boast. No one can do anything to merit salvation or earn favor with God. Why? Because that would give you a platform to boast. Look at what I have done. Look at what I have accomplished. And God does not want any boasting. He wants all the glory. And we're good with that, right? We give God all the glory for our salvation. We take no credit. We don't say, I was smarter than other people. I was more insightful. I made a good choice. No. We say, to God be the glory, period. And so, No one can boast. Why? Because we're saved by God's grace, and it simply comes through our faith. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. The the His is God, created through Christ Jesus, what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, notice the order. We are, and this will tie into later parts of the sermon. We are actually saved for something. Not just for eternal life in heaven. Yes, that's, that's true. But we're saved for something here on earth. What? Good works. And God has given each of you here who would call themselves a Christian multiple gifts, talents, skills, abilities that you might expand his kingdom, widen his influence, giving him more glory, and that's why you're here. Why do you exist? To glorify God and to enjoy him not only now, but forever, okay? And so, we're not just saved, and then we float around until we get to heaven. We're saved for something here, and it's good works. But notice the order. We're saved by grace first. It comes through our trust in Jesus. Then after comes works. And friends, we cannot reverse that. We cannot say, look, I've done a bunch of good, I've read the Bible, I'm a pretty good person, you know, I I don't sin as much as this person and that person. No, that's flipping the order, okay? We're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. Well, how do you know that? Because the Bible alone tells us this, and it all points to Jesus, points to the Father, points to the Spirit. But we are saved for good works. Keep that in mind. And then lastly, lastly, Galatians chapter 2. Again, Paul writing to the church at Galatia. And interestingly, the context here is uh, Paul had to rebuke the apostle Peter. He had to kind of get in his face because he was acting not in line with the gospel. He was separating himself from the non-Jews. Uh, when, when certain Jews who kept the old dietary laws, when they showed up in Galatia, Paul started to, to set, well, not in Galatia. It was actually, um, it'll come to me. It's not coming to mind right now. Acts 13. Someone who's an Acts expert, Pete, Acts 13. Starts with an A. Antioch, my man. Okay. So, it was at Antioch, uh, and, and so Paul began to, or Peter began to separate from the Gentiles because certain men from James, meaning the, the church at Jerusalem, who kept the dietary law, and so Peter was afraid, and he started pulling back. You know, they, they started looking at, at the plate, and they saw shrimp dip, and they saw like bacon-wrapped jalapenos, and they're like, yo, you eating ham sandwiches with these guys? Like, you know that's against Deuteronomy, right? And he's like, ooh, okay, all right, I, I repent, I'm sorry. And he, like, puts down the BLT, right? Because, you know, shrimp and pork were, were forbidden in the Old Testament dietary laws. But Jesus, you know, fulfilled the dietary law, and thus all, all food is clean now. But 
Paul rebuked Peter to his face in front of everybody. Why? Because he was not acting in line with the gospel. And then we break in here. We ourselves, Paul speaking, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. You're like, thanks, Paul. <laughs> and, and, and what that means is the Jewish people had an in with God. If you remember uh, Romans chapter 9, it says, to them were given the patriarchs and the revelation of God and the law and, and you know, the, the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. The Jews were given a lot of privileges that no other nation or ethnicity on earth were given. Okay? And Gentiles were just stuck in their paganism, stuck in their not knowing God, worshiping false gods, and, and really headed to hell. And so that's what he's saying there. But verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified, that you could substitute salvation there. Uh, the Greek could be translated or counted righteous. We know that a person is not saved or justified or counted righteous by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we're saved, by faith in Jesus Christ. So, we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified or made right with God. Okay? So, if, if you're talking to other people, other friends of yours, other family members of yours about Jesus, I guarantee you, you take a survey, just ask. Just ask friends, family, and coworkers. If you died today and went to heaven, and God said to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say to him? And my assumption is most people will have some kind of, I'm a good person. You know, I went to church when I was a kid. I memorized John 3.16. You know, or, or I, I help people at my job. They will have no kind of answer that involves by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone, and outside of that, you should not let me into heaven. You're probably not going to hear that from 90% of the people you ask. And so, what are you going to then do in response? Well, you need to take them to a text like this. Assuming they would believe the Bible to be the Word of God, you could show them this verse and say, look, we're not saved by works. By works of the law, no one will be made right with God. It's only by faith in Jesus, what He has accomplished, not what we accomplish, okay? We're saved by He, not we. All right, Tom likes that, good. <laughs> All right, so now you understand the basis of salvation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. All right, assuming that now, we have some questions to answer. Number one, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and can Christians commit <clears throat> an unforgivable sin? What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and can Christians commit an unforgivable sin? What this question assumes is, uh, it assumes a, a, a text in Matthew, which we're going to look at, but it also assumes that there is such a thing as a sin that can pull us away from God and take him out, take us out of his good graces, okay? What is blasphemy, okay? We don't have blasphemy laws here in America. Uh, if you were in Saudi Arabia, perhaps, or maybe Iran, uh, there would be blasphemy laws. What is blasphemy? A verbal insult uttered intentionally and malevolently against God, revealing the offender's contempt for him. 
Now, in the Muslim faith, you can commit blasphemy against Muhammad the prophet. But for Christianity, it's when you say something malicious intentionally against God, revealing the offender's contempt for him. So the text is Matthew 12, and Jesus runs into this situation. Okay, so let's read it together and unpack it. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. Okay, so a demon-possessed man causing blindness and he's not able to speak is brought to Jesus. And he healed him. I love that. Just so simple. He healed him. So that the man spoke and saw. And the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Okay, that's a prophecy about David's greater son who would be the Messiah. Okay, so the, could this be the Messiah, the promised one who will save Israel? But when the Pharisees heard it, now the Pharisees are, are a very conservative religious sect in the first century. They were the Bible guys. They were the most uh, strictly conservative as far as keeping the Old Testament law, the dietary law, the calendar law, the food laws, and the moral law. Super conservative, super strict. And so they're seeing this happen. They heard it. Can this be the son of David? They heard it. And they said... It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Okay? So they're seeing this happen. They see the man. The demon is cast out. He's healed. People are amazed. They're like, it's the Messiah. It's the Messiah. And their thoughts are, no, this man is empowered by Satan himself. Okay? Beelzebul, who is that? Also sometimes called Beelzebub. Bazalbub, and is a designation for a god of Ekron and later a satanic entity. Although the etymology is uncertain, the meaning of Beelzebul seemingly uh, transitions from the name of a Semitic deity to an agent of Satan, and in some cases, Satan himself. This is saying Satan himself. Okay? The arch enemy of God is empowering this man, Jesus, to do the miraculous things he is doing. That's the accusation. Knowing their thoughts, I love that. Jesus just reads their minds. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And so Jesus, you know, he doesn't get angry and use the force and just, just throw them around. That was a Star Wars joke for some of you. Jesus doesn't use the force. But he doesn't get angry and use his, you know, spirit power here on them. He just simply uses logic and reason. He's like, listen, guys, you know that a nation divided against itself will fall. You know that a house divided against itself can't stand. And if Satan begins eating himself... He will, he will fail. Why would Satan cast out Satan is his argument here. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? I love that. Okay. Therefore, they will be your judges. Okay. In other words, uh, some of the Pharisees, Jewish exorcists, they can do these things. And if I'm doing it by Beelzebul, then what, what, by what power are they doing it? And then he says, they will be your judges in the end. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, 
then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Meaning, you are witnessing the very power and authority of the king. And because the king is here on earth, you are witnessing in present the kingdom of God. You are seeing the power of the kingdom right before your eyes. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Okay, I love that. Um, Jesus is saying first the strong man has to be tied up, then the robber can take his goods. And the illustration here is I have come to tie Satan up and I am robbing his house. How is he robbing? He's taking people. Friends, you are one of the ones who was robbed from Satan's kingdom. Isn't that great news? Like we were taken from the house of Satan by Jesus himself, and now we belong in the house of God, no longer in the house of Satan, using this metaphor. And how now in this day is Satan bound? He is bound by the gospel. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, and here's our verse, you ready? Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, that was Jesus' favorite title for himself, from Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man who will inherit a kingdom and earth and rule, the Son of Man, they'll be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And so you can see here, this is, this is the question, 31 and 32. If someone commits blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, Jesus just said, they won't be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. We call that eternity. And what that does is it seems to contradict what we just talked about earlier. That seems to contradict many passages in the New Testament about salvation and staying saved and being kept saved. Okay? Here's the answer. And then we're going to move on to a more in-depth question about apostasy. If you are in this situation, like the Pharisees, what you're doing is this. You're seeing the power of God at work, and you are attributing God's miraculous activity to Satan. And therefore, if the, and this is in other parts of the New Testament, if the Holy Spirit is the very agent by which we are saved, He's the one who moves upon us that we might believe in Jesus. He is the one who reveals the Father and the Son. He is the one, as John six forty four says, draws us to the Father and Jesus. If we attribute the work of the Spirit to Satan, then we cannot be saved, okay? And so, here is what will uh, cause you to commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You ready? It's you being an unbeliever and then seeing the work and activity of God, hearing the gospel, and attributing all that to the work of Satan. Therefore, if you're a believer already, you can't commit the unforgivable sin. You can't commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because you are already in God. You are already drawn in by the Holy Spirit. You already belong to Jesus. 
So the only actual sin that will cause you uh, to never be saved is unbelief itself. Let me say that again. The only sin which will cause you to not be saved is unbelief itself. You not entrusting yourself to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and the Holy Spirit is the person of God by which that happens. He is the agent that makes the gospel alive to you. He is the one who uh, awakens spiritual life from spiritual death. Unbelief will send you to hell. But if you're already believing and in Christ, you can't be separated from him. That's what we read earlier. Tom read it. He said, no one can snatch them out of my hand because the Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Now, some theologians would argue you actually have to be present and see Jesus casting out demons and doing miracles to be able to commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And because we can't see it, you can't commit it. Okay, I would say maybe, but certainly you can read it and maybe come to the same conclusion. Okay? If you see the Messiah, the Son of God, God become man working on earth, and you say that's evil, and by evil powers he is doing his work, how are you going to come to him to be saved? Does that make sense? Okay, great. Let's move on. Next question is, explain Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, and apostasy. Okay? Hebrews 6 has troubled many a Christian, and certainly it has troubled me on first reading, and let's read it together and be troubled together. Now, Hebrews is, is written to uh, primarily Jewish people who are in danger of turning back from belief in Jesus to Judaism, to dietary law, calendar law, not trusting in Christ alone, or perhaps even adding Jesus plus keeping the law. And so, the writer of Hebrews is warning, do not go this way. And so, he says, listen, it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up for contempt. Mm. Okay, so what that seems to say on a surface level reading is, you can be saved, you could be a Christian, you could be walking with God. In fact, here would be the language, enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and yet you fall away. You turn, okay? And the writer is saying, if that happens, it is impossible to restore you again because you would be crucifying the Son of God and holding Him up for contempt, okay? Now, what this is called in theological terms is, is apostasy. It means uh, a turning away. It means you were once in and you, you're now an apostate. You've, you've denied the faith. You've denied God. You've denied Jesus. You've walked away. Sadly, we all know people who have walked away from Jesus. They once believed and now they no longer believe. They once were a part of the family of God, and now they are not, okay? And Hebrews 6, 4 to 6 is pointing at that. Now, the question is, if we have eternal security, what do we do with this, right? What do we do with this? It's pretty clear. 
or is it? <laughs> now, paradox is a word I love, okay? Paradox means a seeming contradiction. It just seems like a contradiction upon first sight. But when you begin to dig it a little further, you realize, ah, there is no contradiction here. It only seemed like there was a contradiction. And let me encourage you, as you read the Bible, you will find many things that seem, seem highlighted, boldface, seem to contradict each other. But upon further study, you will realize, oh no, they don't contradict at all. Here's one that's, I think, the most obvious in Scripture. It's Proverbs 26, 4 through 5. Ready? Answer, a f answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Okay? Don't answer a fool according to his foolishness, or you'll be just like him. Very next verse. Ready? Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And you're like, wait a minute. That says the opposite, and it's right after the next one. Bible's in error, you know, and you, you just contradict itself. I knew it, you know. No, what it's saying upon first level surface reading, yeah, it seems to contradict. Okay, dig it a little deeper. What's it saying? It's saying you, as a Christian, gaining wisdom, which is what the book of Proverbs is all about, need to understand what kind of fool you're dealing with. And you need to know, with your wisdom given from God, is this the kind of fool that I should not answer? Because I would be just like him, drawn into his foolishness? Or is this the kind of fool that I need to rebuke and answer, lest he is wise in his own eyes? And you need to have the discernment and wisdom to understand what kind of fool you're dealing with. That's what it means. But you see, upon a, a surface level reading, you're like, that's a contradiction. Okay? And the same with this. Seems like a contradiction to many other passages that say we have eternal security. All right, here's two options. I think both of these are good, and I tend to lean towards one. Okay, what are the options? Okay, here are the options. And by the way, Eddie did a whole sermon on this, and so um, we can link that in the description of the video so you can go back and, and, and listen to Eddie's. Uh, and I promise I didn't listen to it before this. I'm not ripping him off, okay? All right, watch. The once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, those four things do not equal salvation. And you say, wait a minute, that sure sounds like it. And I would say, yeah, it does. But you know who those four things describe? Judas. Literally walking around with Jesus himself, performing miracles himself. He was sent out uh, to, to perform miracles and cast out demons. He had the Word of God in person in front of him, and yet he sold him for money. And so if Judas isn't a prime example of an apostate, someone who looked to be saved, who tasted of the Word, who saw the power of the Holy Spirit, who, who was right there in the mix and yet still walked away, then if Judas isn't a prime example, then who is? Okay, and so in Judas' case, was Judas ever born again and saved? No, he was not. And 1 John, which we are going through next, starting next week, 1 John is our new book we're going through next week, next week starting. 1 John would tell us, they went out from us because they were never of us. 
And if they were of us, they would have remained with us. And so their going out from us proved they were never of us in the first place. Did you know that there's a parable Jesus told about this? It's called the parable of the soils. And you have a soil uh, that's rocky. You have a soil that's weedy. You have a soil that's so hard that, that the seed can't even get into the ground. And then you have good soil. And guess how many of those four soils actually produce salvation? One. Yet two looked like they were saved, and yet were not. You remember that? Okay, and so there are categories in the Bible for this, for people that look saved, they look on fire for God, they're, they're, they're preaching the gospel perhaps even on the street, and I know people like this personally, and then before you know it, they're calling the God of the Bible the Yahweh monster, and they have denied the faith, and they hate Jesus. What happened? They were never of us. Yet, if you saw them in that season, you would have been like, I want to be like them. Look how bold they are for Christ. Yet, it was all outward and not inward. Okay, that's option one. Here's option two. Equally, I think, is good. What the writer of Hebrews doing, is doing here is he is warning with very strong language in order to scare the snot out of these Hebrew readers so that they will not turn. He's saying, if you do this, if, if you do this, if you walk away and go back to Judaism and deny Jesus and deny the faith, then it will be impossible to restore you again. So could it be that the writer of Hebrews is using this warning as a means to keep them trusting in Christ and not walking away from him. Hey, do we have other places in the Bible this happens? Absolutely. You remember the end of the Lord's Prayer and, and the Sermon on the Mount? It's scary. He, he, forgive, right? And then he says, if you do not forgive others their sins, then your heavenly Father will not forgive you your sins. Period. And then he moves on. And you're like, what? <laughs> That doesn't sound like eternal security. That sounds like if I don't forgive people, I'm not going to be forgiven. Hey, it's the same thing. It's a warning so that you check yourself if you're living in a place of unforgiveness. Do you really have forgiveness? Because if you do, you will be extending it to others. You will do as has been done to you. Hey, you remember the sermon on forgiveness just a few weeks ago, okay? So there are places in the Bible that this happens. There's a warning given as a means to keep you in the faith, okay? So, God is a God of means. In fact, here's Spurgeon. Everyone loves Charles Spurgeon. Here we go. But, says one, if Christians cannot fall away, what is the use of putting this text into frighten, like a ghost that does not exist? If God has put it in, he has put it in for wise reasons and excellent purposes. It is put in to keep us from falling away, God preserves his children, but he keeps them by the use of means. One of these is to show what would happen if they were to fall away. There is a steep cliff. What is the best way to keep anyone from going near it? Tell him that if he did, he would inevitably be dashed to pieces. The fact that we are told the consequences keeps us from it. A friend puts away a cup of arsenic and says, if you drink it, it will kill you. Does he suppose for a moment that he will drink it? No. 
He tells us the consequence and is sure we will not do it. So God says, my child, if you fall over this cliff, you will be dashed to pieces. What does the child do? He says, Father, keep me, hold me up, and I will be safe. It leads the believer to greater dependence on God, to a holy fear and caution. His holy fear keeps the Christian from falling away. It's a good answer. Which way do I lean? 51% Spurgeon. <laughs> okay. Meaning, I, I, like, I like both. I like them both. I think they're both very rich and, and biblically warranted, and, and I would be fine with either uh, one. Okay. Let's move on. Again, these are all connected, okay? So, so what about apostasy in this text? Okay. Stay in the faith, meaning cling to Jesus. If you feel yourself slipping, which sometimes you will, any legitimate believer who's been a believer for more than a few years feels himself or herself slipping, and what you do is you cling tighter, and then you realize, oh, it was God holding me the whole time. He was holding me. I was not holding on to him. Once you get through that season. But from your perspective, it will, sing, it will seem like you are clinging on to him. And so when that happens, just remember, you heard it here. Here's another question, and we do have just a few minutes left, okay? If you keep sinning, can you lose your salvation? Good question. If you keep sinning, can you lose your salvation? And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to couple it with the next question, which is this. What is a good starting point to share the gospel with someone who believes, quote unquote, or professes themselves to be a Christian, but they unrepentantly practice sin? It's a good question, okay? What is a good starting point to share the good news with someone who, quote unquote, believes, or they profess to be a Christian, but they unrepentantly, meaning they won't turn from the sin and they practice sin. All right. Can you lose your salvation if you keep sinning? There are two passages I, I was tempted to examine, but I knew we'd only have time for one. So we're going to do 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. And I just want to warn you, the Bible is not shy about its warnings and language. Okay? If you would claim to be a Christian, you hold the Bible as the standard to truth, beauty, and goodness, and it will contradict all cultures at all times. Do you think the Romans were offended by the, book, the letter to the Romans? They were. Do you think it's offensive to us in 2023 in Pittsburgh? Absolutely. Is this going to be offensive to some of you? It is. There's your warning. <laughs> oh, wait. I wanted to do more Hebrews. All right. Let's pause on that. And let me finish my Hebrews, okay? The writer to Hebrews gives, gives an illustration, and that's, I love illustrations, so let's do it. He says, for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God, okay? What does that mean? Uh, it means it rains, and you watch the, the rain soak into the ground. And if you're a farmer, you are thankful because you don't have to rain it yourself, which costs a lot of money. The rain does it for you. And then crops grow and you receive a blessing from it. Verse 8, contrast. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worth, worthless and near to being cursed and is at the end, I'm sorry, and its end is to be burned. 
Okay, so that was, that was the very next verse after the Hebrews uh, apostate verse. Okay, so what's it saying? Again, there will be fruit in keeping with repentance. This is what John the Baptist said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And if it's good soil, it will produce good fruit eventually. Okay, if it's not good soil, verse 8, it will be proven to be non-Christian the whole time. And that seems to be where he goes with his illustration. He seems to be saying, if there's good soil, it will produce good fruit, okay? And you are that soil, okay? Meaning, after salvation, good works. Remember that? After salvation, good works, which God prepared in advance for us to walk in, okay? If there's good works that follow salvation, you're like a field that produces good fruits. But if there's thorns and thistles, worthless, and in the end, it will be devoted to destruction. That's a warning, okay? One more verse, okay? And I love this verse. This is why I wanted to keep going. The very next verse says this. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, Hebrews, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Okay? So, things that belong to salvation, okay? Meaning this, I'm confident that I'm not talking about you guys, and I, and I want to say that about you all. I, I am so hopeful that you all are the real thing, okay? My hope and prayer is that there's no bad soils in here and that you all will persevere with me to the end and we will hug each other in that eternal city in the final and forever kingdom. That's my hope, that we go together and we help one another along, okay? The writer to Hebrews says, though we speak in this way, in this warning way, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. What things? Things that belong to salvation. We believe you're the real thing and you're really saved. Okay? All right. So let's move on to the offensive text. Remember the question, what if I keep sinning? Can I lose my salvation? And where do you start with people who profess to be believers but uh, habitually sin? Paul warning the Corinthians. Remember, the Corinthians were a messed up church. He planted that church, uh, Acts 18, you can read about it, and, and man, were they a mess, okay? And they had written a letter to him, and this is his response. First Corinthians is his response to their writing a letter to him. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Right now, he's going to give one of his famous lists. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, those who worship false gods, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so that's a small list of sins, by the way, just a small one. Okay? And what he's saying here is, if you practice these things, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But I love verse 11. Okay, you ready? And such were, past tense, some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified. That means set apart. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, saved, declared righteous in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so, we could all find ourselves in that list, right? You might be like, hey, I'm not an idolater. Yeah, but you're greedy. 
you greedy slob. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. Right? So you, you, you might not be able to identify with every sin in that list, but one of them certainly defines you more than others. Okay? And so God looks at sin in some sense as sin. It's an offense to him. It's an offense to his character. And yes, some sins have greater devastation and consequences in your life and in the lives of others. So in that way, there are greater degrees of sin, but sin is sin. And it's all an offense to God. And so what do we do with this? Because it's saying, if you practice these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's what it's saying, okay? Remember Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 that we started with. We're saved by grace, through faith, to what? Good works. We're not saved by grace through faith to this kind of life. And so if this identifies you more than, I wanted to maybe do Galatians, the works of the flesh in chapter 5, because you have the fruit of the Spirit and then you have the works of the flesh, okay? But I'll just give that one to you. Um, It's Galatians 5, 19 to 21. You can see the works of the flesh. It's a longer list, okay? If that defines you more than love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, then you have to wonder, what am I being controlled by? Am I being controlled by the sin that lives in me or my flesh, or am I being controlled by the Spirit of God? Now, let me make myself as clear as I can. You will fall into these things if you're a Christian. At times, you will be an idolater. Some of us will commit adultery. Uh, Some of us will be thieves. We will be greedy. Okay? Some of us are tempted towards same-sex attraction and fall. But friends, the difference is doing it once, twice, repenting, falling again, repenting, versus I don't care. I'm just living this way. Bible or no Bible, you can't tell me nothing. Remember that old song, can't nobody tell me nothing? (laughs) If that's your attitude, friends, that is not the way the Christian speaks or thinks or acts. And so that's a warning for you to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith in the first place. The book of James warns against someone who says, I have faith, but has no works. So they make this verbal profession, I believe, I trust, and yet their works deny their profession. You know what James says about that? Dead faith. That is not the kind of faith that saves, James says. The kind of faith that saves is backed up by good works. Again, good works do not save us. We are saved by grace through faith, which then follows a life of good works as simply the Holy Spirit living through you. So what is good works? Good works is the Spirit of God dwelling inside the Christian and living his life through the Christian. That's good works. It's a life of love. Now, friends, we sin every single day. In fact, multiple times a day. And and I'm I'm confident that some of you in here had had a terrible afternoon and morning. And you sinned against God and you sinned against other people. And you know what? There's grace there's grace for you. And you know what we do? We confess that sin, as 1 John 1, 9 says, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, and then we plead with God to live differently the next day. That's what we do. 
And friends, that is the Christian life. And as you practice righteousness, just like you practice sinning and it becomes easier and you get better at it, you can practice righteousness and over time, you actually become righteous. Not fully, not that you can credit it to God for salvation, but you change and you're different. All right, so where would I start with somebody who professes to be a Christian yet lives like hell? I would take them here and I would take them to Galatians 5 and the works of the flesh, and I would say, listen, friend, I love you. You really need to consider this. Like, this is the Bible. This is not Chris. This is the Bible. This is not Tom. This is the Bible. This is not Evan. You need to consider the Word of God to you here and see where they go with it. And you can pray with them. Ask the Holy Spirit to move in their life such that they would change. Give them a desire to change, okay? Sometimes it needs to start at the desire level, and so the desire is not even there to do the right thing, and so you start there. God, give them a desire to honor you, to love you, to obey you. All right, and then lastly, last question. If the Father loves me as He loves the Son, and I am hidden in Christ, how does the Father feel, I think that's the key word here, feel about me when I sin? Let me say that again. If the Father loves me, if God the Father loves me, as He loves His Son Jesus, and I am hidden in Christ, how does the Father feel about me when I sin? Okay? So, this question is assuming a lot in Romans 6. If you remember back to when we went through Romans, Romans 6 is all about union with Jesus. Okay? We're united to Christ in His life, in His death, in His burial, and in his resurrection, the way Romans 6 says that is we've been baptized with him into his death, and we've been raised to newness of life. That's called union with Christ, okay? And if we're united to Christ, then what's true of him is true of us. If he is righteous, we in him, we are righteous. If he is fully loved by God, then we in Jesus are fully loved by God. That's uh, the doctrine of union with Christ. Okay? It's a good one for you to study. The union uh, the, the believer's union with Christ, Romans 6. Now, if we're united with Christ, then what happens when we sin, and what is the Father's attitude towards us, even though we're united to Him? It's a good question, okay? And here, here's how I imagine, um, this is the best way I could think of to answer it. We would never want to say that the Father is happy when we sin. We don't, we don't want, yes! He's not doing that. He's not like, good job. You know, you sinned against me. I had to punish Jesus for that. He's not happy about it. At the same time, neither is he wrathful towards us. Because, Romans 8, 1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, that in Christ is union with him. And so, what is, what is the Father's attitude or disposition towards us? Friends, if we sin, He is not pleased with us. But if we will humbly confess that sin, He is like the prodigal son story, running to us with open arms, willing to embrace us, hug us, kiss us, and lavish us with all of His gifts. But if we remain with our back towards Him, I don't think He's going to pick us up and turn us around. Does that mean we're not saved? No, I'm not saying that. But Hebrews 12 does kind of talk about this, and so this is the last text and we're done. 
If you unrepentantly sin against God and your back is towards Him, you are inviting His fatherly discipline. Okay? And we all have received it according to this verse. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, sons and daughters. Okay, sons in this culture receive the inheritance, and sons and daughters are male and female, sons in God. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Okay? Meaning, if you don't receive discipline from the father, you're an illegitimate son. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Holiness is absence of sin, it's absence of corruption, it's purity. Discipline is for our holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Remember, right living, saved unto good works, prepared for us before the world began. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I love that train. Like we think about training for a race or training for your basketball game or training for your volleyball event or soccer game or whatever. You're going to do a weightlifting competition, okay? You train, you train, you train for the event. What does this kind of discipline do? It trains us for something. What? Holiness. Right living. Isn't that good? And so we can, listen, partner with the Father and the Spirit and the Son and begin turning from the sin that displeases Him, and we don't invite His discipline. Right, and so here's, here's the promise in this verse. I don't like it, you don't like it, but here's the promise. If we are His children, and if you believe in Jesus, you are, and you are deliberately sinning against Him, you are saying, discipline me. You are inviting the discipline of God, and it will be for your good. And he compares it to earthly parents. He's like, look, what parent is not going to smack their kid in the butt, okay, unless you do grounding and timeout, which I do all three, <laughs> till they're a certain age. What, kid, what father is not going to discipline his son for saying, I hate you, or don't do that, and they look at you, stick out their tongue, and do it anyway. They're like, oh, good job, buddy. Love it when you directly disobey me. Please do it again. Okay? And, and so you could just translate it to your parenting, okay? If you have parents, or, or if you're a parent and you have kids, just think about your parenting with your children. No one likes to discipline their children. Like, you see the tears. Like, my, my son will push me right to the edge, and then he knows when I get serious because I say the two dreaded words. That's it. Once I say that's it, he knows. I'm sorry, you know, and he starts <laughs> shuffling with his, he knows. You're about to get it, bro. And he knows if I say that's it and I start moving aggressively towards him, and I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. Look, don't make the father move towards you in that way. Right, just turn. Don't invite the father's discipline. Okay? All right, I love you, and I will tell you these things because I love you. 
All right. So, if you are a son and daughter, which I pray all of us in here are, okay, and we are off course, off track, God will get us back on course, and it won't be pleasant. And so, we want to do our best to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Because if we walk by the Spirit, we will not, Galatians 5.16 says, carry out the desires of the flesh. We won't invite the discipline of the Father, and we will be full of the Holy Spirit, exhibiting love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against those things, there is no law. Okay? And so, let us walk by the power of the Spirit, not by our own strength, by our own flesh, and let us keep in step with the Spirit, and let us honor and glorify God. All right, so we're going to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. We are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, for God's glory alone, because the Scripture alone teaches us this. And we now live for Him, a life of good works, doing good to others and honoring God with our lives. And so part of, part of the good works that we do is actually worshiping Him. That, that's part of good works. Before we were worshiping self or worshiping some kind of false idol that wasn't God. And when you come here to corporate worship, we are doing, quote unquote, a good work. We are doing what we were made for, to worship the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Part of that is submitting to His Word. Part of that is singing. Part of that is taking communion. We are proclaiming the Lord's death together until He comes.